over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Numbers, Dr. Ron Allen, who a professor friend of mine who teaches at Dallas Seminary, writes, who but a mathematician could rise with joy to a book called Numbers? Uh, 35 plus years ago, Cindy and I were invited back to a church that we attended while we were in seminary. It's a church we, were, we fell in love with. And uh, they brought in the eminent Dr. Bruce Waltke, who uh, you wouldn't know Dr. Waltke, but Dr. Waltke is, in my view, probably one of the top five or six men in the country who know Hebrew and Semitic languages and Near Eastern theology better than anyone literally in, the, in America. He's taught all over the world. And uh, he's, he's a funny guy, he's a quirky guy. And uh, he came in to, to speak at this anniversary banquet for this church. And he was prefacing his remarks about being nervous because he was gonna read this passage and it was gonna take him a long time. And I don't remember precisely, but some of my memory fails, but he said, I think he said it's going to take about 12 minutes to read this passage. Well, as a teacher or a preacher, 12 minutes, is, that's a death knell. You cannot read a passage for 12 minutes and expect people to pay attention. And he said, I've been practicing all week. I've been timing myself, but it just takes a long time for me to read it. And he said, um, but um, what, 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 I want to say one thing. When I get to the part about the capitals, it was a section in Second Chronicles 2 about a guy named Horam who helped Solomon build the temple complex. It's a great story. It's just a lot of detail. And he said, when I get to the part about the capitals, there's only about three more minutes left. <laughs> and everybody laughed like you did. And then he said, but it is a page of the word of God. And just like you and me, we went quiet. I want you to keep that sense in mind as we look at a high view of the book of Numbers. These are pages of the Word of God. He spoke. He did not stutter. He's clear in his communication. And when we approach something like this, it's a good reminder that this is his Word. Uh, The title, as you know, as we've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the title in our English Bible is not the title in the Hebrew Bible. The title in the English Bible actually comes from the Septuagint, and the base word is arithmoi. And where does arithmoi come into English? Arithmetic. Well, arithmetic isn't a real cool name. Turn to arithmetic chapter 4. It didn't work, Rora. So they call it numbers over time. Uh, The actual word is a Hebrew word that means in the desert or in the wilderness. And it's the fifth word in the Hebrew text. And most of your Bibles, it's probably the fifth or sixth word. It's one word in the original, but they called this book in the wilderness. Frankly, I like that title a whole lot better than the book of Numbers. So if you're like me on your Numbers, the first part of your your chapter, write, if you want to, in the wilderness, because that's the fifth word. Or if you have an NIV, it's in the desert. Um, And this The reason I love it so much is because this is a hard thing. 
A trip that should have taken 11 days takes 40 years. And Israel's going to have to learn and relearn and be taught this again and again. And so this idea of this is a time, man, we're in the stinking wilderness. This is a hard chapter of the Pentateuch. And doctor, we, talked about, we also talked about the authors, and uh, there's a debate about that. I won't go into what we've reviewed, but mosaic authorship I still argue for. Um, Dr. Eugene Merrill writes a very insightful comment. Moses is certainly the principal figure in the book. Throughout it, he is a participant in and an eyewitness to most of its major events. I mean, it's sort of a duh I mean, if Moses is the primary character in the book, why is it such a big fight on who's the author? And the scholars will continue to debate that until Jesus' return. Numbers three, uh, 33 uh, verse 2, Moses recorded their starting places according to the journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. So the book of Numbers is a bit of a detailed and laborious thing at times, but Moses is writing this, as evident by being the principal figure, he's also writing down the places we would say that we'd say a timestamp. Uh, there used to be in Word documents, there was this little thing at the very bottom of the thing, and you, it had the, had the, um, the uh, what, what do you call it, David? Lee, help me out. What do you call it? It had like the C drive backslide. It was, it was always embedded in the very bottom part of the Word document. What do they call that thing? Not a footer, it's, uh, anyway, but it, it was built into the Word document, and if you wanted to print out, you kind of had to erase it. Anyway, now, of course, it's all embedded in there. You hit information on your Word document, and it tells you when you started it, who edited it, everything, they know everything about you. So um, this, these are timestamps. I think of these things as timestamps. When we have a, a date and a place and a, a land and we're crossing the Jordan, that's a timestamp. So that's kind of like a, a document that we find out the information of when it was written. The date of the book is pretty easy, actually, if we're correct on the date of the Exodus. The Exodus uh, crossing the Jordan happens about 1445, 1446, and so we take 40 years off that, and it's a very conservative date to say 1405, 1406 is when the book of Numbers was written. It's actually a very compressed storyline. It's a long book, but it happens very quickly in the way it's documented and applied. Um, Notice the final verse of the book, Numbers 36, 13 on screen. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses. Remember, he's the meat. That's why he's such a revered character for the Jew. No one talked to God like Moses got to talk to God. Through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So in my view, this is very clear. This is on the cusp where they're going across the Jordan. So all that's happening here, when Moses is on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, he's not just up there, you know, eating barbecue, hanging out with you know, Jesus and glowing. There's a lot going on on that mountain. And the corpus of the law that Christ, I'm going to argue the Christophany, that Christ gave Moses on the mountain, the corpus of that law is what becomes our Pentateuch. That makes sense? So don't think he just went up and came down with two tablets that were numerically wrong. He came down with this corpus of literature that God revealed to him, and it becomes recorded over time. So Moses is going to die. It's a timestamp in the book of Numbers. And 
it's, it's just a definitive type marker. Why, why the book of Numbers? I mean, and one of the things you're, you're trained as a BSF precept, a Bible study person, community Bible study geek, whatever you are, nerd like me. Uh, why is this book written? You know, you young men and women who are going to college, there's a book by Mortimer Adler. It's a hard book to read for most people today because we're bad at reading. Mortimer Adler wrote a book, How to Read a Book. It sounds silly. It's a brilliant book. If I were king, I would require every junior in high school to read the book and write a 20-page report on it and then do it again their senior year before they go to college. If they did, college would be a breeze. Because one of the things Mortimer Adler says is, before you read a book, find out what the author is trying to tell you. When you read a preface, if he or she doesn't tell you what this book's about, don't read the book. You got to know why. And that's why I start a lot of books and don't finish them. Not because I'm lazy, because the author's lost in what they're doing. And when you become a critical reader, you start to understand how books are written. Some books you soldier through. I've read a lot of books going, it's got to get better. It's got to get better. And I go, this book is terrible. What's the purpose of the book of Numbers? This is a fascinating question. I'm going to read you some long excerpts. Just try to take it in. Dr. Merrill writes, Numbers seems to be <laughs> seems to be an instruction manual post-Sinai. The manual deals with three primary areas. How the nation was to order itself during the journeys. B, how the priests and Levites were to function. C, how they prepared themselves for the conquest of Canaan. He goes on, it's history is with the purpose of describing the Lord's expectation of Israel, their reactions to a unique record in an era where the nation had God's promise of the land, but not the fulfillment. Now I read that and I go, eh, eh, okay, let's try another one. Alan, Dr. Ron Allen says, we contend the book of Numbers is sublime. That doesn't help me, Dr. Allen. It forms an essential link in the forward direction from Adam to Jesus. I like that, but then he doesn't explain it. He continues, though. He says the theme is worship. Well, you can say that about any book of the Bible, right? On and on they go. Uh, Wilkerson and Boa, and this is another book. If you still use books, I encourage everyone to buy for a little your Bible reference books. It's called Talk Through the Bible by Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson. You know my love for Ken Boa. And what they did in this book is a one-page chart of the book. There's a paragraph of the purpose, key verses, author, date, time. It's not a book you're going to read, but when you're in BSF or one of these groups, you're going to pull out, what in the world is numbers about? What's Levit Well, in a couple of pages, you're going to get a high view. And so I love what they do. Their theme that they suggest is the consequence of disbelief and disobedience. The consequence of disbelief and disobedience. And you can read 15 more commentaries. Why am I telling you this? Nobody agrees on the clear purpose of the book of Numbers. So we start out going, okay, what in the world, Michael? Why would you do a survey of this? I'm going to give you my attempt, and it's, it's reductionistic. I'm going to tell you the purpose of the book of Numbers is that God remains faithful when his people remain faithless. God remains faithful when his people remain faithful. That's the point of the book in my view. I'm not a scholar. I'm not. I'm just saying, when I think of this and read through it and study it, that's the high-level view of what's going on in this book. Now, let's, let's jump into some of it. Um, there are so many noteworthy features in this book. Um, it would take series. In fact, I was sitting there talking the other day. 
I get into these books, I'm going to teach Leviticus. I want to teach Numbers. I want to go a year in the book. Sorry, we're going to do one day in it. Um, and you're probably glad of that. The tent of meeting, first of all. The tent of meeting is a prominent feature. It's repeated again and again and again. I don't know. Some of you have Bible study methods, uh, BSF and uh, precept. You've got little tools and little you know, Holy Spirit things you draw in the margins. You know, As I say, I haven't read my Bible, but I've colored most of it. Uh, but but you know, whatever you want to do. When I have a recurring phrase, I make up an acronym that I know. So every time I saw the tent of meeting, I put T-O-M in the margin, T-O-M, T-O-M, T-O-M. So I can go back and go, oh, look, all the times the, the, the tent of meeting. The congregation is a prominent theme. And so when you're reading, you go, oh, this is an important part that it's being recorded again and again and again and again. And the tent of meeting, of course, becomes the facility of worship. Along with the tent of meeting, we've got this Levitical priesthood. Aaron, of course, is, let's just call him the high priest. From Aaron, he's commissioned the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood will be the ones that are going to take care of everything that has to do with the tabernacle complex, also known as the Tent of Meeting. It's a sad story, and it's true throughout Scripture, and it's true in many of our lives. Aaron has a bunch of sons, and some of them get in trouble. Some of them get, you know, they, they basically get sort of, we don't know exactly how they met their end, but two of them get destroyed because they played with strange fire. We don't know what strange fire is, but so Aaron lost two of his sons because they were, you know, off in the weeds. Um, he's got other sons and grandsons who are going to continue this. Some of the other key features are the Aaronic blessing. And if you know anything in the book of Numbers, you probably know the Aaronic blessing. I used to have it memorized, but as I get older, it all, the ram shrinks and it falls off. That's all I can figure. But uh, it's the blessing, and you'll hear a lot of Jews that will give the blessing. And this was given to Moses from God to Aaron to bless the people. And the ironic blessing in chapter 6 is something that you want to look at at some point. Um, again, we've got this fun play going on. Remember when Moses didn't want to be the spokesperson? And he has the, the five basically five interaction questions. You know, who, who, who am I to go? Who are you to send me? What am I to say when they don't believe me? You remember that? Send somebody else. And finally, what does God say? All right, who's going to go with you? Aaron. And so there's a good question. Was Aaron the one actually doing the speaking? And Moses kind of standing, you know, he, he's the, in military terms, he's the general, but the XO is the one doing the talking. And there's some validity to that theory. And in Numbers, you'll see Moses and Aaron mentioned a lot in these interactions with the people. And it's just sort of an interesting side note. At any rate, the Lord commands Moses and Aaron to build this tabernacle complex. The firstborn becomes an enormous issue. What was the final plague? The death of the firstborn. Remember the big storyline. Pharaoh thinks he's God. He thinks his firstborn son's a God. The whole the whole story of Exodus is who's God, Yahweh, Elohim, or all of these innumerable Egyptian idols and Pharaoh is the chief God. That's the story of Exodus. It's called a polemic, a war. You think you're God? You think you can do these? The, the river is your, it feeds your land? I'll turn the river into blood. Remember we talked all about that. So it's a mockery polemic. Guys, I'm God. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. Are you getting the picture of the whole story of the Bible? There's a guy coming along, somebody, the firstborn, a little later, it's going to do a whole lot of things called Jesus. Israel is the firstborn chosen son of God. How do we cement this in the Jews' mind? We have a group of priests, and their firstborn 
will be the priest. We have a group of animals that they're going to have a firstborn animal and you're going to kill it. This firstborn theme is so critical throughout all scripture and tucked away in all of this uh, ritual and and we call it religious cult because it's a cultic form of worship. We talked about that last week. Not cults in a bad way. This is a cultic way to worship. It's a system of worship. At any rate, the firstborn plays a hugely prominent role. And in so much, if, if you're in the priesthood and things aren't done right, you're going to die. This is, we're not playing around. You touch something and you're not the right person, you're a dead man. So this firstborn theme is very critical. Numbers chapter 3, verse 11, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I've taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. What's he done? I'm not going to take firstborns out of everything. I'm going to take a firstborn tribe. Make sense? The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. Think about God choosing a tribe of his priest as the firstborn. That's the theology. For all, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn. In Israel, from man to beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. It's a page of the Word of God. I am the Lord. I'm not playing around here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the sons of Levi by their father's household, by their families, every male from a month old. I love that. If this is a baby boy and he's a firstborn in a month, I want, a, I want an accounting of that. I want a P&L sheet. I want to know who are the firstborn in this tribe. Not for God's sake, but for Moses. And upward you shall number. And again, the, you're going to see this number word in there is why English pulled that title in. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord, just as he had been commanded. These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Mirai. These priests had duties, and they're all throughout Numbers. I'm going to give you a high-view summary level. Don't, just, when, when a communicator reads a long quotation, it's impossible to do it well enough for you to listen, and I ask you to put on your thinking cap and try to focus. I know it's hard. Get the sense of it uh, so it doesn't become white noise. Now, the duties of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, and the tent, its covering, and the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the hangings of the court, and the screen for the doorway of the court, which is around the tabernacle, and the altar, and its cords, according to all the service concerning them. Stop for just a second. The word priest and the word ministry and the word service in Hebrew are kind of commingled and interchangeable. When you are a priest ministering in the complex, we'd say that you're serving. So those of us who grew up in Episcopal or Lutheran or Catholic backgrounds, the priest, it wasn't this highfalutin person. They were a servant of a complex. It's a ministry function. Um, I digress, forgive me. Uh, verse 27, of the Kohath, uh, of Kohath was the family of the 
Amorites and the family of the Israelites and the family of the Hebronites and the family of the Uzi-Elites, uh, as my friend Dr. Toussaint would say, and hard name beget hard name beget hard name. <laughs> These were the families of the Kohathites. In the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 performing the duties of sanctuary. Mic drop. 8,000 plus people were involved in this complex. The families of the sons of Kohath were, were to camp on the southward side of the tabernacle. If you want to spend some fun time, go on the internet and you know, you've got to be careful where you go, but look at some of the arrangements of the tribes around the tabernacle. It is, you see these pictures, maybe you like a movie like Braveheart or like a movie like, you know, uh, um, uh, Patriot, when, when, the, when the troops are stationed on the ground in order, they've done these drills for months, for years, whatever, and now they're in battle array. It's a sight to behold. And so you see, let's just say 1.2 million people in their tribal arrangements. I don't think they're laying around like Bedouins on rugs. They're at attention, they're organized, they're placed around this tabernacle complex. It, it, it's heyday, it would have been a sight to behold. And if you were part of it, you would have been, you know, the hair on the back of your neck would have been standing up. And we missed this because we just, ah, oh, it's a boring book. Um, verse 30, the leader of the father's households of the Kohites, Kohathites was named, I'll, I'll read them all. Um, let me go down to verse 32. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, was the chief of the leaders of Levi, and they had oversight of those who perform the duties of the sanctuary. Um, some of you in the industry, music industry know about cagers and roadies and loading in and loading out. One of my friends talks about, I've got to go load in for a shoot. He's got a big truck and he hires crews and they load all this gear in the back of a truck and they'll drive to you know, wherever all night long and they get there and those roadies and cagers unload everything and maybe it's a band they're setting up, technology, board, sounds, run snakes. Think about that on steroids when it comes to the temple complex. And they didn't have lifts and trucks. They had people to carry this stuff. Uh, Numbers chapter 7. Now on the first day that Moses finished setting up the tabernacle. Boy, that was a big day. He anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the father's household, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes and they were the ones who were over the numbered men. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts, 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each. They presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these from them that they may be used in the service ministry of the tent of meeting. You shall give them to the Levites, each man, according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, so forth. Drop down to verse 9. But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they carried on their shoulder. Now, this is one of my fun digressions. BSF precept, community Bible study. What do you know about carrying the ark? How are you supposed to carry the ark? Poles. How long were the poles? We don't know. But we can do some backward math. 
The ark itself is 27 and a half inches, uh, uh, 42 inches, 27 and a half inches. It's not that big. It's not even four feet. Not even yeah, 27 inches, about like that. You know how much that thing weighed? They do estimates on the acacia wood, on the gold, on the, uh, on the, uh, the cherubim that were on top of it. Estimated it weighed 600 plus pounds. Think about it, a box that weighs 600 pounds. Now, if you know anything about leverage, a short pole is hard to pick something up. A longer pole, it's a little easier. You know, as my father would say, with the right fulcrum, you can move the world. And it's easy when you got the right leverage. So estimates go somewhere because of the complex. There was, the, remember the Holy of Holies tent, and then an outer tent, then a larger tent around it. And some of you Bible study folks, remember, what do we know about those long poles? How do we know they were long? I mean, there was some other feature besides how long they were. They were visible outside of that inner tent, not for the courtyard tent. So when you do the math of the size that we're given, a cubit is 18 inches, it's very likely they were about 12 feet to 19 feet long, give or take. And it's a fun study for those of you that are geeky like me. Now, fast forward. Remember when the ark got stolen by the Philistines? And it was, you know, David finds out where it is and he takes his troops and they go get it. And how do they move it? They have a cart and they have oxen. The oxen have never had anything pulled. And what happens? Remember the story? The cart wobbles. The text is interesting. It doesn't say it was going to fall off. It just said, it, it, you know, basically it, it, it looked like it might fall. And remember the guy, bless his heart, who tried to help? Uzzah. Uzzah was fried. Uzzah died. Don't name your child Uzzah. So David is real happy, right? David is mad. He's mad at God. He's mad at the situation. They stopped the movement of the ark. Now, when you read through Numbers, if they'd have known the story, you don't move it on a cart. There's only one tribe that touches that thing. I told you if you touched it, you would die. What part of this don't you understand? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was hubris and pride. I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to be like God. This was probably just ignorance. I didn't know. Where are the Kohathites? Failures. Where's the Levitical priest? Failures. They stopped doing their job. And so we have these great stories, all of which are not in Numbers, but I like to talk about. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, if you touch the holy object, you're going to die. Numbers records the day of the tabernacle was erected and the cloud of the tabernacle itself. It's a wonderful chapter in chapter 9. It's the first time the cloud comes down and descends. It's been done. It's been sanctified. It's been set up. Moses has followed God's command and this cloud descends. I mean, think about that. Think about being in a plane. On, let's just say it was a beautiful day like today. And they'd worked and built all this stuff and put it together the way God had commanded. And all of a sudden, this enormous cloud descends on the whole thing. I mean, that would... It would probably scare a lot of people. And Moses and Aaron are they're ecstatic. They're worshiping. This is amazing. God's real in our lives in the wilderness. In the wilderness is the storyline. Israel is going to grumble again and again and again. They're going to grumble about man. They're going to grumble about food. Moses is going to later grumble. 
God gives them meat. Horrible story to read to your children about the quail and what happens, but it's in Numbers. Um, he has, we know the stories of the spies in the land, right? Numbers 13, God sends out spies. Who are the two faithful spies? Who are the 10 other ones? Losers. Losers. That's who they were. Yeah, yeah. A bit confused. Uh, a horrific consequence after the failure. And uh, when, when you go to Israel, uh, the Ministry of Tourism and you'll see this in, in some of you, uh, graphics and art design, uh, the Valley of Eshkol. Remember they came back and the grapes were so large they carried them on poles. And the, the produce of the land was so enormous. It was the land truly of milk and honey. And they, so, so the emblems on the side, you'll see they have a very high-end um, tour service that goes in Range Rovers and Hummers and things. And uh, they're black. And on the side they had this gold iconic thing of two guys and a big thing of grace between them because now they're in the land. So this imperature in their whole vision. Well, that's all about the stories of the spies. The one issue of failure, 11-day journey, turns into 40 years. One, for each, uh, one year for each of the 40 they failed. Um, think about it. Everybody over 20 is going to die. I don't think we pause enough in these storylines. Those 40 years were one long funeral procession. They buried people. There's some estimates. I, don't, I won't go into the numbers because it's boring to a lot of people when we're talking about numbers. But there are estimates of how many funerals they had a day on average. And if you're following Levitical law, if you bury somebody, you know what that means about you? You're unclean. And there's a whole process you've got to go through to be clean. You know what that process involves? Water. What's the precious commodity? Well, I mean, there's so much going on in these storylines we miss because we, you know, we're losing our ability to carefully study so the book is full of death. Uh, the book will also record the death of Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, the three primary leaders of this pack. Once again, we have the sad loss of Miriam uh, in Numbers chapter 20. The people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we'd perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. What a statement! I wish I was dead! By the way, can I say as a, just a, a, a co a pain uh, person, struggler. A lot of you are dealing with stuff with surgeries and cancer and you know, upcoming things and hips and knees and shoulders. And you know, it's fun getting old and uh, all these joyful things. Some of you are in healthcare uh, you know, world. Um, when I read stuff like this, my mind runs places. And when you ever get to the thought, well, I wish I was dead. I and mean, why, why am I going through this? I just, I'm tired. You know, my mom got that way for the last eight years of her life. She wanted to die. She died at 91. I, I'm not judging her. I'm not judging her. And I'm not saying I have the answer, but I have a good question. What's your purpose as you get older? And if you don't have that answer, then this is where we get sort of flat affect, going, well, you know, nothing to live for. Nobody really cares about me. The phone doesn't ring. I'm not as important or as busy as I was. I'm sitting at home. You can only watch so much television. God help you. You know, you, you, you're going to be sick and recovering. have surgery. And I got to, I'm going to read and catch up and watch Netflix and binge about the second day. Your, your brain's oozing out of your ears. You know, I got to get out of this house. I got to do something different. You know, we're not made to do nothing is my point. And the moment you and I get off to this, you know, I don't know. I'm sick. I'm tired. I don't feel well. I've been there. 
I've been there when I'm recovering and dealing with chronic pain. Oh, Lord, I'd rather go home. This sucks. I don't want to do this. And I read this. I don't judge these people. I don't say, those stupid Israelites, because I would have probably been the one saying this. Why then have you brought the, Lord, brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness and us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt? My goodness, you were in slavery. Well, I'd rather be in slavery than in the wilderness. You know what? We're all the same way. We'd rather be enslaved to sin than that everything stripped out of our lives. Human condition. You brought us to this wretched place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And when you go to Israel, you'll see how important water is. Then Moses and Aaron came from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Boy, there's a lot there. Christ is the rock. He'll be struck. The waters will come. The cleansing of Christ's blood. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded. So far, so good. Moses and Aaron gathered and assembled before the rock. So far, so good. And he said, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? He was ticked. You don't have to know Hebrew to know that. He's ticked. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. I got to believe that gut punch put Moses on the ground. He's a good man. He's a great man. He's a follower of Yahweh, Elohim. He's not going to get to go in. We've been practicing to play NFL for 15 years. You're never going to be on the field. You've been learning how to fly your whole life. You're never going to be in a real cockpit. You've been practicing to be a surgeon your whole academic career. You cannot even go into an OR. None of those come close to what this guy felt, in my humble opinion. Meribah is what this place is called. Contended is the Hebrew, is the English word. Contended with the Lord. People contended with the Lord. Moses contended with the Lord. We're going to call this place contended. Remember the waters of Mara, the bitterness. These places take on names, and they're still there today. Well, time fails us. My main man, uh, Phineas. Oh, I love the story of Phineas. You know the story of Phineas? It's a great story. I can't tell it to you. We don't have time. Um, Numbers 33. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. So we go through this trauma, and then we go back to, oh, I got to tell the story. I got to record it. I got to write down the history. It sucks, but I got to write it down. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. These are the journeys according to their starting places. What should have taken 
Three weeks, 11 days and change takes 40 years. All right, let's look at four lessons and then we will send you home. Number one, seeing miracles does not convince people. Um, in, in, in the Christian world, both West and abroad, uh, there's a lot of attention, sometimes attention to mir- miraculous things, signs and wonders. People want to see things. I'm actually emailing a young woman that I just met at a funeral. I officiated her grandfather's uh, funeral a few weeks ago, and I met this precious young 20-some-year-old girl who's with YWAM, and she's dealing with some really crazy stuff in her uh, two-year program. And so we're having the, I mean, this kid is thinking about things that most mature Christians don't think about. So we're writing these long emails back and forth. And when I get one, I go, it's going to take about an hour to deal with this because it's not something off the cuff. And I've chosen to try to help her. And she's really struggling with the theology that she's being taught versus the theology she was raised. And I'm trying to be kind and just not, not say, well, this is right and wrong, but that doesn't work. Um, but one of the things that she's so enamored with is when she sees God work in a powerful way. And then the question becomes, well, why doesn't he always do this? Um, Miracles and signs and wonders, whether you believe they're still active today or not, we could have that discussion, certainly. Uh, my viewpoint is God still heals, God still performs miracles, but God has not given a person the gift to heal, a person the gift to do something miraculous. That's the differentiation. Elijah had the power to do certain things. Elisha as well. The apostles as well. They could heal a person. Jesus as well. So the individual had the power from God to perform a miracle. That's different than we say, there's no cancer on the MR now. It's gone. It's a miracle. I'm not going to argue or debate that. But the problem with a miracle and signs and wonders is it does not make people believe. What had Israel seen, my word? The ten plagues, water from the rock, manna every morning, the cloud every day and night, the protection, even though they were, what God had provided everything they needed and they still wanted a miracle. Lesson learned, men and women, you'll never be satisfied on this planet. Part of the Western materialistic culture is the insatiableness of it. We're all in the same frog in the kettle. Bigger, better, newer, more. I am guilty. It's not bad to have bigger, better, no more, but you better have a baseline of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Or then it's just insatiable. It never stops. You know, I never need a new shirt or new pants or new shoes until I see something. If I go to the mall, hey, I need, I don't go to the mall. I hate the mall. (laughs) If I look on Amazon Prime, yeah. If I get a 5.11 email, I'm toast, yeah. Miracles don't convince. Secondly, ask God, not merely for a miracle, but ask him for an immovable faith. This is something I've tried to teach myself my whole Christian life. I'd rather have an immovable faith than a miracle. Because if I get a miracle, and you all have heard me teach most of you long enough to know the story I'm going to tell about Lazarus. Lazarus is dead and in the grave. And Jesus goes and resurrects the poor guy. I think he got a bad deal. I think Lazarus got a stinking bad deal. Because now he's got to live and then die again. I mean, come on. But God's demonstrating something. He's just an object lesson. Um, I want an immovable faith, not just a miracle. Because if I get a miracle, you know what? I want another and another 
and another and another. And 10 plagues weren't enough and daily provision wasn't enough and a cloud by day and night wasn't enough and water wasn't enough and quail weren't enough and the land of milk and honey weren't enough and the spying out the land wasn't enough and I'll be with you and I'll tell you, if you do this, I will bless you and your enemies will scatter. It wasn't enough. I'll do everything for you. I will be your God if you do what I tell you to do. It's not enough. It's never enough. So don't be hard on the Israelites. But a good thing you can do is ask God, in your great kindness, will you give me an immovable faith? An immovable faith. I'll, I'll make him uncomfortable a little bit when I'm talking about Wayne Wolf. Wayne's taught me a lot in this little endeavor called Stonebridge. Because Wayne, I would say, has to get the faith. And he shrugs his shoulders and laughs. We'll see what God does, Michael. We'll see what God does, Michael. Let's just go see what God does, Michael. That's refreshed my heart. That's refreshed my heart. Because you, know, you look at obstacles. How are we going to do this, Wayne? I got no money, got no building, got no elders. What are we going to do? He did, Let's see what God's going to do, Michael. Let's just be faithful. That's how the body works, by the way. In your small groups, 186 of you, some have signed up for groups. That's what you want to happen. Somebody's going to have the gift of faith, the gift of encouragement, the gift of support, the gift of caring, gift of mercy. When you're in trouble, they're going to be there to talk to you, have a coffee. You're going to go to the hospital. They're going to be there in the waiting room with you. This is a beautiful thing because we need each other. No, you can't do this alone. You can't do this alone. You got to have somebody to lean on once in a while. And hopefully you're at the place where you can help them. That's when it gets fun. And so Wayne helps me. Michael, let's just see what this guy's going to do. Who knows? And he laughs that Wayne laugh. <laughs> Half of them want to smack him, but he doesn't. <laughs> You're too positive. Can't you be a little cynical with me once in a while? <laughs> Thirdly, God may take all the props away. Another cheery Michael Easley lesson. Well, if we are physically, emotionally, and spiritually parched, what do you do? And I, and I you know, we've all heard preachers talk about we all have a wilderness experience. You have a you're a wilderness experience. Wilderness man used to get so angry. People said that. You know what? You're going to have a wilderness experience. This is a book called In the Wilderness. McFly, hello, McFly. Why are we exempt? Why do you expect the world to be fair? As we talked all the way through 1 Peter, where did we ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? I don't mean to be cynical and lose hope. I'm just trying to be a bit of a realist. And that's where you need people of faith and encouragement and hopeful and joyful to bring the rest of us along when we get in the ditch. I have this theory, and don't even write this in pencil because it's probably, it's probably false teaching, but I have this theory <laughs> that God takes us to the edge over and over and over and over and over again because that's the only time we trust him. You know it. I've said it a thousand times. When your money's fine, your marriage is fine, your kids are fine, your job's fine, and it's a beautiful spring day, you don't need God. I don't need God. The corollary is where I think, it, it, it's, a, it's probably wisdom, it's not theology, but it's probably wisdom. The reason we are led in and out of trouble is that he would put his impress on us. The moment you get too big for your britches, the moment you are too depressed and too discouraged, the moment you're living in sin on the knife edge, I, I can... I can experiment sexually, I can sleep around, I can do drugs, I can take money from the employer, I can, 
inflate my expense account. I can, you know, live on pornography on the internet. I can, you know, do whatever. The moment that's when it's dangerous. That's when it's dangerous. And when the props are gone, what are you going to lean on? Lastly, never underestimate the benefit of falling on your face. So many times in Scripture, we read of people who fall on their face. My favorite one is in Revelation, where John sees the angel of the Lord, and it says, I I love to write this book, I fell on my face like a dead man. I have this other heresy theory, that when you and I die and we cross from this world to the next, when you see Jesus Christ, I don't think he's going to ask you a question, that's just a silly way of sharing the faith. Um, what, what are you going to say when Jesus says, why should I let you into heaven? Mic drop, I don't know. You know, what are you going to do? Um, I think when you see him, you're going to fall on your face like a dead man. And he's going to pick you up. I love you. I died for you. It's okay. You're really dead to sin now in your life. Come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come in. And you're never going to look back. When you get to that edge, when they were going to go into the land, when they're facing the, the water at the Red Sea, all these issues, when they were afraid and did the wrong thing, what should they have done? Fallen on their faces. It's a beautiful metaphor. In the wilderness, the whole book, what do you do? You fall on your face, baby. And you say, he loves me. He cares for me. He knows all about me. And praise God, I can worship him when all the props are gone. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.